is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we're offering four conversations from episode 59. Our review of the recent Nature Review's gastroenterology and hepatology paper titled Advancing the Global Public Health Agenda for NAFL. I begin this conversation by referencing Ken Kusi's recent discussion of the multi-specialty clinical pair pathway driven by AGA and other specialties on episode 49, and Scott Freeman's discussion of the environmental influences on microbiome and health. Jeff Lazarus notes that environmental and health eating groups can play a significant role in changing behavior by changing environment. He also praises Ken and that group's work on clinical care pathways. The discussion turns to discuss how bleak the future might look if cirrhosis continues to grow at such a dramatic rate. Comments from Louise and me support the idea that liver risk might double in the next decade, plus minus two years, if we continue at the current rate. Jeff goes on to discuss how imperiled our futures might be if we do not act now. In the end, group members discuss the places they believe action will drive the broadest, fastest, most durable impact in the world. This global health agenda has been endorsed by medical, governmental, and patient advocate stakeholders around the world. Its results and insights have the potential to shape the global NAFL dialogue from here forward. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. We've had two conversations on this podcast in the last couple of months that bear on this issue in two very different ways. First of all, Ken Cousy came on, I guess, about two months ago, really, to talk about the Clinical Care Pathways paper that was published in Gastroenterology that was the work of multiple specialties, coordinated, I guess, under the aegis of the AGA, that he was the lead author on. I think, Jeff, that touches on a lot of the points, at least in the state, not that it's gone anywhere yet, but the kind of model that you can build in this system that makes sense. It was a pathway. It had steps. It was, this is what you do, and then this is what you do, and then this is what you do, and the reason everybody should care. So foundationally, on the medical side, I thought that was really interesting. As I was listening to you today, I was realizing that those two might interlink in some ways. What you're talking about making happen, that's an effort to begin to make happen, at least in the state. That was number one. Number two is Scott Freeman was on during ASLD, and he characterized NAFLD as an environmental disease. His point being, we've had, you know, people have been around for tens of thousands of years. Our genes don't change very quickly, and yet in the last 35 years, this disease has taken us by storm, and what's changed in the last 35 years are eating habits. And eating habits affect on the microbiome, and as we learn more about how the microbiome interacts with neuronal systems and other things in the body, that that's a pathway that merits a lot more attention than it's getting right now. I mean, Louise made an offhanded comment to me on a side note last week about we have to think about this as an environmental issue also. Now, I don't think that was exactly the same thing, but it, the points, I think, are related. There are policy issues around how we think about food and our ecosystem in terms of what people eat that clearly come into play when you think about this disease. Just thoughts about either of those? Jeffrey Lazarus. So, so that's one of the things that actually gives me hope, even though it's a big challenge to address the entire environment and what we're eating at the same time. But I mean, it does mean that we have allies in groups that are trying to protect our climate, in groups that are trying to work for, for healthy eating, because that's how we're going to really change things in a big way. It's going to end up being a bigger difference than the individual behavior change, although I think that's also important. And, you know, in the work that Ken Cousy led and, and, and that pathway, it's remarkable and it's tangible. And that's what we're going to need more of. And a lot of that's going to come at the national level too, because our health systems in Europe are so different and it's so heterogeneous. We're going to need to understand what needs to be done at the primary care level. How do we engage with endo? How do we engage with other comorbidities and, and other colleagues and who's going to be paying for it? What you suggest about in our allies, it's like what Luis was saying with the SDGs. I mean, we need to think big. I mean, this is a big change. Stephen's absolutely right. This is the canary in the coal mine. You know, you said 
said one big change we've had has been our eating habits. The other big change, of course, is sedentary lifestyle, which has gotten a lot worse during the pandemic. And then the other big change is much more positive, which is that we're living longer. You know, the good thing about the liver is, is it takes a long time before it conks out. But uh, we're also living a really long time now. As WHO said, mortality is 100%. We're all going to die of something. The question is just what? We could get a lot more time if we address liver health. And now we're seeing what's going to happen. You know, when Stephen was talking about the importance of data, it made me think of the modeling that the Center for Disease Analysis, um, Chris Estes, Homi Razavi, and others, and, and partners in countries have been carrying out. Because when they look at what's going to happen in terms of F4 cases in 2030 due to fatty liver disease, you know, you get a doubling, tripling, or quadrupling in the countries that they analyzed. I realize modeling is a very powerful tool, and we need to do more of it. I realize it's also, it's modeling, and it's based on a lot of assumptions. But the future looks quite bleak if we don't do anything. And that that's the kind of messaging we're going to need to get to policymakers, combined with the kind of costing, you know, for the work that Yarn was leading, so they can see the cost of inaction. Louise Campbell. That's what struck me in the piece was that doubling and tripling of de- compensated and decompensated cirrhosis, because that's immediate. That's in the next few years. And our hospitals are certainly not configured for that level of patient illness coming through. So unless we, as policymakers, unless health purchasers really start to look at these figures, cirrhosis is increasing over 10 to 15% per year in each hospital. So we just don't have the resources to look after and care for these people appropriately. And that should never be a state of lack of knowledge to be able to offer somebody the best care available in your local trust or local hospital. And that's where the immediate liver risk is for me, is the quality of care and outcomes that these patients are going to get in the next 15 to 20 years, unless we actually start to change it now and take and wake up. Thanks, Louise. Let me just interject quickly before we go on to a couple more comments. I want to give our audience a gift. The gift is called the Law of 72. It's a very simple statistical rule that you can use in situations like this, which is you take a number, you divide 72 by that number, and that will tell you how fast the incidence of whatever you're looking at will double. So let's say that the cirrhosis number is 12%, for example. Law of 72 says you take 72, you divide it by 12, and you get six, and that says doubling in six years, which says quadrupling in 12 years. So if you want to understand roughly what happens if nothing changes, it's, it's my gift to everyone who listens to this podcast. Use it wisely, use it often, and when appropriate, scare the stuffing out of people with it. Like, say, that example. Um, Jeff, you go on. Comments, thoughts? That's the point, is that look look at how quickly things are going to get so bad. I mean, it sneaks it sneaks up on you. I mean, in cirrhosis, well, it sneaks up in years, not months or weeks like the current COVID pandemic. But suddenly, before we know it, liver cancer was the second leading cause of dallies of all cancers. And people seemed really surprised. Everyone in hepatology knew it was coming. We might not have known the exact numbers, but we were thinking, well, it could have even, it's going to be number one one day. And like I said, with the modeling study, by 2030, things are looking pretty bad and we're about to end 2021. And that was really, you know, to go back full circle, that was the impetus of the consensus statement was to take that public health approach and say, in the face of this major challenge, there's a lot we can do. And there's a lot of allies and potential allies out there. But right now, we're almost at ground zero. And in 2022, we really need to turn that around. And we need to work to not just get it into WHO documents, to get it into one of the WHO official data 
AIDS, the way we did with, with hepatitis and HIV and, and malaria and TB. We need that attention. We need the World Health Assembly. So whatever one thinks about WHO and, and its assembly, in the end, all it's governed by its member states. And we need those member states to recognize at an assembly meeting in May each year that, um, that fatty liver disease is serious. And even if they call for a strategy or an approach or a framework some years down the line, that they at least acknowledge now that we are going to need it. Thanks, Jeff. Jorn, you have a comment or we'll go to final question. Jorn Schattenberg. Yeah, I guess my comment is that really, and this is where the expertise of Jeff and the uh, public health care research field comes in, that we get policy makers to consider this as a disease that needs a strategy and an outlook. I've mentioned funding independently for universities, but you've got to come up with a plan for your healthcare system. There are disease management plans in Germany, and uh, I'm waiting for the day that we have the term liver in there in an uh, obesity package or an obesity care path. We got to, at that political level, grow this together. And that's far beyond what I could achieve as a physician. And this is where the public health agenda experts come in. I think that's why I'm so happy we're at this point. Well, okay, Jorn, thanks for that. And I think that's a great comment on which to go to final comments. I already gave you the question, right? One place where you think we need to have the greatest impact and one place where we can have meaningful impact quickly in this entire panoply of issues discussed in the consensus paper and everything else we've talked about today. Stephen went first, so Brave One goes second. In Germany, you're settling up with a new government here and healthcare officials are being formed and panels are being formed. So I'd really like to reach out and be in touch with them based on this type of work and, and contribute to these policies that will be making up the next four years of German healthcare. And of course, even longer because the problem's real. It's there. It's the money. It's costly. By looking at it from a public health agenda, we can define the need here. I'm going to jump in next to give Jeff the last word. Not dissimilar to your. Here we're looking at more integrated care pathways. We're looking at diagnostic hubs being set centrally and fibre scan and non-invasive technologies were advocated in there. But they'll only get there if commissioners understand that the liver is actually important cost to them and to the patients within their region. I'm happy to go and scan every commissioner in the country to show you what your liver health is like if it takes you to understand your own liver health. But we really need to have liver higher on the agenda in the commissioning hubs and for who's purchasing healthcare to get out there to have a look at liver health because everybody I know now knows somebody who knows somebody who's got liver cancer and that can't continue. Sadly, it probably will. I will let Jeff have the last word, which means I'll go next. Um, This is a terribly male and terribly pugilistic view of the world. But one way to think of this particular enemy is if what you were talking about is boxing. And the left jab is uh, the non-communicable disease and what it does to the overall metabolic system, diabetes, heart, etc. And then the uppercut is actually liver cancer. So if the jab hasn't taken you out, the liver cancer will cause a demon of a problem for you. It's hard for people to get two thoughts into their mind at once, but here I think it's pivotal. So I'm guessing smarter people with me who've got much better visualization powers equipped with a better way to characterize that. But that really is the point. It's both the jab and the uppercut. And I think if we understand the role that both of them play in the scale of this issue, It'll be easier to get people doing the things they've got to do. And with Jeff, Jeff, with that, Jeff, my friend, last words yours. Thank you so much, Roger, and thanks, Luis and, and Yaron, for this discussion that's been so important and enlightening. I like the boxing analogy. I would say the inflection point for me is that we're going to need to see modeling beyond four or five or even ten countries so that we can see just how bad this is going to get, and again, how much it's going to cost to really get policymakers to react. We've seen how slow they react on on so many issues. 
years. Um, but now, like you said, Louise, so many people have liver cancer. We need to find allies, unfortunately, among those important people who, you know, and spokespeople who have had liver cancer or have had someone close affected to them. That The patient groups are incredibly important, but they are quite weak in most countries. So we're going to need to strengthen our ground. You know, we're going to need our foot soldiers, the patient advocates, the patient groups. It's going to take new hepatologists and other liver health experts to work with them and to build that army to raise awareness about how serious a condition is. And like you said, Roger, it's going to be a left jab. It's going to be a right uppercut. But one way or another, the liver is going to get a lot of people and it's going to get a lot of people by surprise. And with the numbers we have projected to 2030, it's going to be a major public health problem, not just because we said it is in 2021. It simply will be. I have one more question for you. This is a U.S. question. Everybody who listens to this podcast regularly has been beat to death appropriately with the data from the two San Antonio Medical Military Center studies that Stephen did in 2011 and 2021 that suggested among a group of walking around people in their 50s in San Antonio who thought they had no cause for pain or concern about their livers that 37% had NAPLE, 14% had NASH, and uh, in the latest round, 6% had F2 or greater, which is the one number that had changed over the 10 years. It was 2%, now that's 5.9%. I shared those numbers with a public policy friend who said you can never let those numbers get out. And I asked why, and the answer was because even at 20 to 25, the numbers we're using right now, people who have to pay for this are scared to death. And if you give the numbers that are any higher, the odds that they're just going to stick their heads in the sand and deny the problem becomes infinitely greater, particularly private sector payers in the U.S. I'm wondering whether there is a risk that if we amplify the problem to its true scale, we start to scare people away or get them to throw up their hands. And how do you see dealing with that? I think that's a really good point. And I do think that that is a real problem. I mean, if we cry pack of wolves and there's only a wolf, people aren't going to listen as carefully. I think we need to be very careful not to overestimate the numbers. That was a big problem with HIV. It's a problem with hepatitis C and it's a lingering problem because it looks like things got a lot better when they actually didn't get a lot better, at least in terms of mortality. They got a lot better in new models of care, or the more people aware of the treatment and, and better prescribing and so on. So I do think it's an issue. The numbers are, are high enough now to worry people. We need to appeal also to, on the one side, the economics. Um, you're, you know, For those in the US, that, that's a real issue, the cost of inaction. And in Europe, there are value systems we need to appeal to in addition to the economic arguments. But we need to avoid exaggerating the issue. We need to talk to our allies and say that this is going to make the diabetes worse. This is going to cause more CVD. That we know. And we don't need to exaggerate the numbers of people with fatty liver disease, but we know that there will be serious issues with the comorbidities in addition to the own mortality through liver cancer and end-stage liver disease. And now, back to Roger. We hope you have enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, December 15th, with our next episode in which we review the Splendor study on bariatric surgery and the impact of related weight loss on the liver. If you want to join the live audience Monday, December 13th at 3.15 p.m. Eastern Time, email surflive at surfingnash.com, that's S-U-R-F-L-I-V-E, with the request that we will send back a link to serve as your mission ticket. Or simply look for our invitation post this coming Friday. I hope you join us then, either live or on the podcast. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.